All right. So, Brian, we looked up the work orders and we saw in the initial demos that there was 25 songs they tracked initially. Um, where are those songs? Well, somebody handed, I'm sure it was those Ted, tapes. went to talk to the label and played them some version of it, whether it was all of it. I would doubt that. But they probably picked a hand selection of uh, what they really wanted to hear. The mixed tape of that hasn't been found, but the track still exists. So that was what we were working on. And I really do hope it can come together. As I think we mentioned briefly last time, there are songs we know on there, some we don't, and some that have never been heard. Um, uh, some that have been reworked even and retitled. So <clears throat> I had a question for you on these. So, I mean, looking at the invoices, so they spent one day completely doing a live uh, version of every single song. And it looked like they had eight to 10 reels, a two inch. So they just let the machine fly and they were in here. This was in this room in here recording. And then the next day is listed doing various overdubs, not really specific. Okay. And then the final day is, it just says 25 titles mix. So they rolled through, you know, 25 songs and I guess mixed them. So. What I've heard agrees with what you say because yeah. there's a live take. You can hear them chatting. And the highest number I hear is a take two once in a while. Mm -hmm. Let's do that again. And so there's usually a single take of each one. And then sometimes a second in a rare case, they would do a second. And then you can hear backing vocals done. So I think given that they're in the room with the drums, in the room with the guitars and the bass, that they decided to save the singing for later and maybe some of the lead vocals, but obviously Roth is in the room chatting with them as they cut things too. So in the vocal booth, that would be. So yeah. I think that there's uh, mostly a live performance captured plus that part of like harmonies that make it sound like Van Halen. And then the mixing day, which again, it's quick work. They weren't mixing intending day. to release Three it. days. Yeah. Boom. And then uh, subsequent day to do a transfer, uh, like to two track and make some cassettes, probably went to... Warners, but they weren't in then. Uh, that was done by our personnel. I'm glad you had these notes. It is an incredible resource because all of our memories are re relatively faulty. Even though you may remember things well, sometimes that's shaded by what you've done telling the story over the years or pictures you've seen or, or what complicated memories crossed wires with the other ones. So having a piece of paper from the day well, the only reason I have this is because I pulled it off the invoices. So we actually, you know, I went and looked at, pulled the invoices back from April. That's the real detective 77, work, so that's the best we can do. And this is how history is really done by yeah. people that do it right. You have to go through all the details, even the small ones. And it paints a picture that is more accurate than even the stories were told or what people remember. Like you found that they're spending more time on things. Yeah, we can talk about that. They spent a lot more time on this record than I recalled. Oh, um, wow. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, well, one thing I found very interesting was everything was booked in half-day, six-hour sessions. Uh, we're all starting Ted Templeman's book, but does he mention that there was a reasoning behind uh, the, the half-days? Did they work better than that? And I didn't know about that till you mentioned it. So, that's why we're here, just to have a... I would assume... Well, I think part of that was back in the day... Oh, that's correct. In, this, in the late 70s, there was no such thing as a lock out of the studio. Everything was on an hourly. So we typically had a, the day sessions and the night sessions. Day sessions went 12 to 6. We had a quick one-hour changeover, which was like pandemonium around here. And we'd start at 7 p 
p.m. open for the night sessions. They worked the day sessions, so they worked 12 to 6, and pretty much they had to get out because they probably had somebody coming in at 7. So that's why they only worked 12 to 6 yep, most days. But I was surprised that all these days that they, there's 33 days that they worked on this record. It includes tracking, overdubbing, and mixing. And mixing, correct. Yeah, we thought it was closer and to 14. Fl- yeah, I thought it was only like 10 days or something. We've counted 33, is that what you said? 33, wow. yeah. <laughs> and they flip-flop between this room and that room. Mix some in there, mix some in here, track some in here, track some in there. And three mixes, three remixes of Ain't Talking About Love. Yeah, it looks like they mixed it in one to begin with, then subsequently mixed it in two, and then came back like two months or a month and a half later to do a remix on it. That was the last thing they did. And it was like December 30th. So remixing Ain't Talking About Love in here again. So I sure hope you can get an invite to Don Landy, who is, you know, very underrepresented in the media world today. Yeah. But I think it would be great to hear him come back to home territory here, talk about not just this, but the many things he's done here that are great records, and to to give some insight that he would have great memories about, even just small individual sessions or something that would be standout stuff. Yeah, I mean, when I was pulling these, I was, you know, I had the Warner's file. So I was looking, and it was just, this was at the end of the year. Prior to this, it, he had done... A Doobie Brothers records for like four months, a Lowell George record, and a Nicolette Larson record. You know, just nonstop through yeah. the whole, you know, 1977. And so, he and Ted guy. have been working together since the 60s yeah. as kind of a production pair, uh, doing so many things together all the way through that stuff that it was kind of a, a two-headed thing. You know, they kind of <laughs> did stuff together all the time, and they spoke a language that was even unspoken Don knew what Ted wanted. Ted knew what Don would do and so forth. So I think it's a great, again, the Ted Templeman book also by Greg Rainoff is an incredible read. Yeah. yeah. The reason Ted came to Sunset was because the Harper's Bazaar tracking, right? Well, that's what I surmise. I mean, the first thing he ever, to my knowledge, that he came in here and did was Harper's Bazaar when he was in the band. And they did that Simon and Garfunkel song, um, Feeling Groovy, yep. 57th Street, Street Bridge. Bridge. Yeah. yeah, So that was 68, I think, from our records. So that's when he first got introduced to Sunset Sound. But it would be interesting to hear out of, you know, from him, why did he come back? There's or, even a rumor, I think Ted was telling Greg or somebody that they would sing in the chamber sometimes just to get a different acoustic space, go in the chamber, use a mic in there, and record themselves doing vocals oh, cool. rather than sending it into the chamber. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did Jim Morrison sing inside the chambers too? Not, not that I'm aware of. Okay, mm. but a lot of stuff happens in the chambers. <laughs> a lot of stuff. <laughs> I've heard some stories. Meditation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what would be the reasoning? Because um, we had thought that they did so much in here and two, but now we're realizing, uh, looking at the work orders, they were in one for a lot. Would, do you think they were just testing out different sounds and you doing songs in different rooms because they were in one for eleven days? Um, and then they came over here for numerous days and then went back to one. This is all on VH1. It's only speculation because the rooms are different significantly in some ways. Sure. But then again, if you put a mic in front of a guitar amp, it doesn't matter. If you put a mic two inches from a snare drum, it doesn't matter that much. And they weren't using a, a huge amount of room sound on the records, more the chamber. So mm-hmm. 
I don't, for example, you could ask me all day long, which was recorded by listening in each room. And, and Don has his way of recording, his way of mixing, that there's a strong consistency from song to song, although they are slightly different, but that may be because it's a slow song or a real rager, something aggressive. And yet it's possible that like the louder, brighter songs were done in here, but I don't yeah. know that it worked that way. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear from him because it could be something as simple as scheduling. Yeah. That we didn't have the room available. Cher's so coming in. Somebody. She, she's a big star. Van Halen's not a big star. Yeah. So, and, yeah. or they, you know, we couldn't bump. We, didn't, we never bump people. So, like, well, is one open? Yeah. Well, let's go into one. So, could be that. Or specific songs he wanted to cut in a specific room. You know, I wanted to mention yeah. something I forgot about last time because there's a lot of guitar players like me doing guitar sounds and playing with it. And they often talk about, the chamber echo being on one side and the guitar being on the other. And it's absolutely not true. The chamber is in stereo the whole time, but the guitar being on the left speaker so loud is covering it up. But if you listen to the end of Running With The Devil, they go, and the song stops and you hear it go in stereo. But for the rest of the song, because it's so masked on one side, you hear it on the other side. And that's why everybody thinks it's it's panned to one side, but it's not. It's just the the truth. And again, mm. thinking about it, this is the same chamber. We didn't have a million reverbs to choose from back then. It's before most digital reverbs existed. Just very few were available. And so if you wanted a chamber, you used it on the vocal. You put it on the snare drum a bit. You put it on the drum toms maybe uh, and the guitar. And so you're doing this. It's not a separate effect just for the guitar. So... A lot of times the chamber will be on the backing vocals. You bleed a little bit of it, a little bit more on the guitar, and that's the sound for the mix. And I do think that that's a, an interesting trick for people recording at home. Try to limit yourself to one reverb, as people used to do at Abbey Road or CBS or whatever, Sony. People didn't have a lot of options other than maybe one tape delay and one reverb, some kind of chamber or plate. And if you do a mix that way, it actually holds together really well if you have one reverb on the snare drum, a different one on the kick drum, one on this guitar, one on the vocal, then there's a lot to listen to and your ear gets sort of confused by all the density of things. Mm-hmm. And if you can make it work, that's how Elvis did it. That's how Bob Marley did it. The Beatles, the Stones, all those great records don't blend a bunch of different spaces together. They're kind of creating a sound from the record. And of course, they are using the same board, the same mic preamps, the same EQs on everything. There's a lot of homogeneity, yeah, but but everything's homogenous and it's the same Mm -hmm. EQ, the same compressors, the same reverb, the same board that we we have this kind of uniformity of a Stevie Wonder record that is not done now when we use a different mic pre for the overheads. We use a different mic pre for the snare drum. You create these different sound spaces that are a little bit more hard to listen to. Maybe better sounds on the overheads, Maybe a better kick drum sound, but it might affect the overall record not being as big a blend, you know? Mm-hmm. I have a couple of YouTube questions for you if you want to. Mm. Have you heard that Chris Holmes from Wasp had loaned Eddie, the Ibanez Destroyer? Well, definitely he on- did loan him one of those guitars at one point, but I thought it was for a later record okay. because Ed had chopped up his guitar and it didn't quite sound the same. Gotcha. It's on the first record in the picture I brought you. He's playing the Ibanez, and it doesn't have a cutout. It looks like a Gibson Explorer. 
and it's a very solid and chunky guitar. So you hear it on Jamie's crying rhythm track, Running With The Devil, You Really Got Me, the songs without tremolo. And it's got a little bit more meat to it. It's got a little bit more thunky, heavy sound to it. And yet, uh, even on the first tour, we see that guitar is cut and has the little teeth cut out of it and so forth. And that certainly may have affected the sound from what we hear. So Chris Holmes definitely has a can. He's out there somewhere. We should, oh, he's out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's in England, I think, yeah. talking out. Um, for his tremolo before the Floyd, his trick was just WD-40, right, to keep it from slipping? Well, yeah, there's a lot of things when the old tremolo bars before the Floyd Roses were invented and this whole first record we had talked about uh, was done that way. It's a more solid sounding thing. And in the first guitar player interview, Ed says that the Floyd Rose is really brittle, bright compared to the old Fender. Uh, so, but it does have that ability to remain in tune, yeah. which is a, a trade-off that's probably worth having. But uh, I remember pictures of his guitar. This is geeky, but in the back were the springs. There are three springs, sometimes five, but he had three springs kind of in a V-shape to make them a little tighter, but not as tight as five springs would be. And there are tricks. Everybody used to do something with lubricating the nut, like you said, WD-40, or other people would snap the springs or just have a tremolo that only went down and didn't go up. So every time it came back to the same spot. And definitely there's a difference in sound and a difference in approach if you can use this kind of tremolo versus all the others. It was certainly a, a beginning of people modifying guitars before that period I don't recall a lot of people with custom guitars. There were the Grateful Dead who had like custom-made Alembic basses and guitars, things like that. But those were mostly those burly wood, you know, cool carved instruments. Yeah. And what Ed was doing was taking parts and pieces, which was not quite a thing in those days. Uh, soon was coming out, but there were very few people that made their own instruments out of parts. Yeah. And did he go to Kramer? After that? It's a little bit later, into the 80s. Into the 80s, yeah. yeah. And they made a few, quite a few prototypes of what would be that. And then Wolfgang guitars after that, EVH following and so oh, forth. Oh, the so Axis. Yeah. That, I love that guitar. And again, uh, when you hear him play, no matter what it is, it's him playing guitar. And those are quite different guitars, really. They have different features and approach, but even playing clean or dirty... Just his, uh, you know, attack and fingers and the way it is is just so unique. It's very hard to. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, people can get close, that's for sure, but it takes a lot of work. <laughs> Had you heard that the um, "Hot for Teacher" intro was ripped from another song, a cover song or something? No, but what I was saying uh, was that on the recording, but not released, Ed had played bass, and so he's got a guitar solo that we can hear all over MTV and all over the single that he's tapping and doing this complicated part at the beginning. And it actually du duplicated that on the bass an octave down. So he was playing that. And then a band called Talus, which was from Buffalo, New York area, upstate, uh, was a great club band where Billy Sheehan was in that group. And Billy Sheehan was taken on to be in David Lee Ross in their group. So uh, they used it when Ted Templeman produced David Lee Ross' first record, they used the same idea, which did not come out on Van Halen, but they thought of it. And then it was used on the song Shy Boy. There's a solo section towards the end where the guitar and the bass are playing this complicated thing uh, in octaves. Steve Vai and Billy Sheen are doing it, what Eddie and Eddie had done on Hot for Teacher, but was never used. 
I went to Billy Sheehan's birthday in Texas about nine years ago. He's done really well. Again, I, I saw Talus back in the day. They were playing uh, in L.A. at clubs, and I knew about them from Friends on the East Coast, just a ferocious band. And at the time, he was the bass player that people were talking about, probably like Ed was in town here. People knew him or George Lynch or these amazing guitar players who had not yet broken out, but Billy was the guy that everybody said he's the Eddie Van Halen of bass. You know, he can outplay anybody. And he was in UFO for a bit and a few things that didn't really go, but then when... David Lee Roth said, I'm going to put together, you know, this super group of people. He got some pretty incredible players to join his group. So, absolutely, and it worked for yeah, a while. Definitely yeah. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to touch down was Pretty Woman was done in this room. And they had been, as we were discussing earlier, touring, recording nonstop. Paul, the studio got a call from Warner Brothers, said, we got to get in there this weekend <laughs> to do to cut this track. Yeah. What do you think the reasoning was behind uh, the urgency of that? You know, I'm not sure, but it just seems like there are times when if you're gone from the public eye in those days, people oh, didn't yeah. have blogs. They didn't have a Twitter account. If you're gone and you've been on tour for seven, eight months, 10 months, and then you go away for another four or five months to recuperate and write a new album, it's more than a year when no one hears from you. And so to put out a single, again, the Beatles did lots of singles and EPs every year, plus an album or two every year. And tours weren't as long back then, but this is how you kept in the public eye. And if you went away for a year, that was a long time for people to forget about you. It's very different now how things are, but that makes some sense that they thought, let's do a single, let's do a song we enjoy playing, and and we can sing our amazing harmonies on the bridge and do these cool things that make it a Van Halen tune. And suddenly it explodes, especially because they had this great, funny video on MTV that took off, too. So that's they, a big thing. Were they just here for the weekend doing that? That was it. Two days. I, that's what I recall, that yeah. they, they needed to come in and cut a single because they didn't have any current product up. <laughs> and they, there's a, they wanted to get it out right away. A very weird intro to it, a very dark piece called Intruder. And... It's instrumental. It has a lot of creepy, scrapey guitar sounds. It's playing with springs and strings and so forth. But the part that nobody notices is that there's keyboards on there. And I think it's David Lee Roth playing a little plastic synthesizer that Electromonics made for a while. It has a little touch plate. It's a very simple part, but they're cutting it live. There were one or two takes of that done with different guitar effects and noises. And the keyboards are live there. So obviously, it almost certainly is David Lee Roth playing keyboards on that track, which no one gives him credit for. It's not difficult. It's just cool that he played keyboards on something and we never noticed it. And Ed was such a great piano player, too. I wish there had been more demonstration of that. I'd really like to see if they, I mean, Motley Crue did a piano song. I mean, anybody could do it. Van Halen 3 has got a lot of piano. Well, true. Um, and and his synth work is great, too. You can hear the classical influence in some of the soloing and synth stuff he does, too. Mm-hmm. But I really think that that would be a side I would love to see explored. There's a lot of harmonic differences and things like that. Cradle Will Rock is keyboards, but mm-hmm. is distorted Wurlitzer and so forth. So, yeah. I, I had heard that uh, So This Is Love, off Fair Warning, was the first guitar solo he ever had to comp. Like it's four takes, and they really chopped it. That would have been before that. It was all one take. You can hear that the solos are fairly loose on all the yeah. records. They're not that scripted. Uh, there's parts like "Running with the Devil" that do have a 
a theme that repeats and it's composed. And he often plays them the same way, whether it was just written that way at home or if it was just, let's learn the record, the part that I threw out on a whim. But it's certainly, uh, there are parts and phrases that come in there. Even like Eruption, I really don't think it was all the way through composed as much as, you know, parts thrown together on the moment. And then even learned over the years by himself and other people to duplicate it. But to Composola would not be unthinkable. Obviously, if you did two or three, you have enough tracks. And God, I love the beginning there, and I love the end. Yeah. Do what everybody else does. It, does, and put it them doesn't together. sound comped. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that's just what I'd heard. You mentioned Fair Warning as being a favorite, and it certainly is for a lot of people. It was not that popular as far as sales go. So but it, it's a really dark album with a really creepy cover. And it affects people in a way because it holds up over time. The songs are great. The recording is actually one of the strongest recordings as far as sound. Agreed. And so drum sounds, guitar sound is thick. I've talked to Dweezil many times about it. He's like, that's my favorite guitar sound of all time. That's what he yeah. wants to get. And so there was also a time, though, having heard the tapes, when Ed was playing with harmonizers. And for those who didn't live through that period... And even Tide Harmonizer had a pitch shift knob, and it was grainy, but you could turn something up an octave, or you could turn something down a fifth. And so there were tricks you could do with that. But he was playing with an octave down and playing second guitar parts. And he was doing, you know, the basic unchained guitar, and then he would do one here an octave down through the grainy harmonizer. And it sounds weird and twisted, but it's not necessarily quite perfectly in tune and it sounds weird and evidently from someone I talked to who was in the studio said Ted Templeman was like no man you're the one guitar guy you're the rhythm guitar yeah. that just works and if we keep layering it doing these experiments it will get away from what Van Halen is and I think it was a bit of a conflict between the two of them to say no I want to experiment I want to do weirder cooler things yeah. and try sounds that I can't maybe even do live and Ted was pushing for, this is Van Halen, though. This is what people want and, and how you're known for. So I think that that is another thing where I'd never heard that before, of him trying to do really weird effects on the guitar, aside from manual things and physical stuff like that. Well, didn't in the Hagar area or era, he flipped to a stereo eventide where yeah. you don't know which side is... Which. Yes, and there's even a, a Kramer made a Ripley guitar, which has different pan pots for the different strings. And so there's beautiful, clean guitar stuff where the, the sound bounces around. And it's unique to that specific guitar that they made. Uh, but certainly it's not a band known for doing what Jimmy Page did, which is track your guitar, double track it, or Black Sabbath mm -hmm. or anybody that was common would make guitars big by double tracking them. But he obviously didn't need a bigger guitar sound. It would be interesting to hear, but... It didn't need it for Van Halen. Yeah. Another YouTube question? Yeah. All right. I wonder if there's, is there any recording of the song that Eddie wanted to use, the mini Moog on that wound up on Dancing in the Streets? Oh, I don't think so. And again, uh, as we said, there aren't really many outtake things. Uh, what happened to the tape, we don't know. This is true for many bands. Many groups recorded and got rid of the outtakes because no one ever went back to do a 5.1 remix or a. they had the mixed tape. And maybe you kept the thing around in case you wanted to do a quad mix or something for the movies. Yeah. But you wouldn't want an outtake that didn't have finished guitars or finished vocals. So uh, I don't know that that was recorded. But again, this is what I'm hoping as they go through the... 5150 volts that 
even something from cassette or an early reel-to-reel would be great to hear. Uh, something beats the hell out of nothing, as my friend always says. <laughs> so I don't care about the quality sometimes as much as what's the material, what's this song. And evidently it was a keyboard trick playing the Moog, mini Moog, through the triplet delays. Boom, ba 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 boom. Mm-hmm. That whole thing was designed for another song. And it really made that song, whatever it was, cool. They said, no, let's put that on our new single. And now the gimmick is used up. You don't want to do it twice, you know. So it was a point of contention for a while. Interesting. I'm sure people will be arguing with you in 15 minutes about that. But Well, I've heard what they've heard. And again, it's all secondhand, thirdhand. I wish it was more firsthand information. The Warner Brothers demos from 1977 have been out for quite a while now, right? Well, there's a dirty-sounding, weird-sounding version of it. Not what we've heard, but I heard some stuff out there that was like, strange mix and tinny and hissy Hmm. and same with the gene simmons stuff no one has the original tape and i don't know exactly how it sounded but you can hear a version of it out there so there are some things out there um however like i said there are sometimes different takes of those tapes so not necessarily what warner brothers heard or which ones got mixed so we're hoping for you know down the road and i'm just time will it's 15 years since all that was done and it just wasn't time to come out. So, And people keep leaking things. Something was leaked yesterday, correct? I don't, actually, I don't think so, but I'm, I'm worried that things come out too much because if they do, then the companies won't see a reason to put it out. If something's out, even in poor quality, why should we sell you a, a download or a CD or a vinyl version of it? That This is part of the problem with sometimes things bootlegging out there is that they, they get out and it stops. Up. Well, people have heard that already. Oh, no, but they haven't. They haven't heard a good version. They haven't heard the uncut version. They haven't heard a really amazing mix of it that sounds so good and makes the band feel good and flattered. So I'm hoping that, you know, things come out the right way, proper channels. Um, Van Halen Management and Warner Brothers and the band members and so forth have to agree on what they want to do. What would be the delay right now? Just that, I mean, Warner Brothers would have the say over Alex and wolf right i'm just a person that works in the studio and i don't (laughs) control any marketing there's there's always somebody with a game plan and somebody having discussions and again stuff's been around for years the label's always been in touch with them and you know there was a time when ed reached out to me through a friend to see if we still had tapes and i don't know why they don't call warner brothers directly so i don't know but uh, it's not our world where i'm kind of like you guys and that i'm a big fan and i happen to work on some good stuff Hopefully, uh, there can be a version of it someday. But I also hope that there's stuff we don't know about. Maybe their own recordings. Maybe they demoed things before Gene Simmons. Maybe Gene Simmons has his tapes. Maybe Ted Templeman has the mixes of the... I don't know. So I'm hoping... And, of course, there are concert films. We've seen clips of things. Yeah. There were shows recorded. Yes. Yeah, okay. a lot on there YouTube are, lately. Absolutely. aren't terrible yeah. as far as audio. And so, like Led Zeppelin has gone anywhere from, you know, the best quality to the weirdest. They'll put out stuff because they know people want to see a live version or they want to see a different version that's longer. Mm -hmm. So I'm one of those fans that will pay for things if it's good. And good doesn't mean it's perfect. It just means it's it's worth buying, you know. Absolutely. Amazing stuff. Uh, You know, we've been in touch with Don, and hopefully he'll come in and – we're going to contact Peggy McCreary because she worked on VH1 um, yes, and she a, did. She a was, song or two of VH2 as well. Um, you know, I haven't 
been through the complete VH. I'm kind of working my way through the records, so I'm about halfway through the VH2 album. Um, but Peggy McCreary, who is still with us, and uh, she worked on the bulk of, as the assistant engineer of the bulk of Van Halen 1. She did not work on the demos, though. Yeah. Yeah. She was a staff engineer she was a staff at that yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, doing prints and things like that. She's mainly yeah. known for doing prints. Work, yeah. But she worked a lot with Don Landy and Ted Templeman. The print yeah. stories are amazing as well. And this is pre-prints anyway. You had so. mentioned drum sounds earlier, and I think that's worth yes. talking about because it's not just a guitar world. Um, and it does change over time. They were definitely distinctive drum sounds and parts. And... Uh, I think the that first leads to a lot of disagreement between people. That's well, sure, and I think even the band themselves was sort of they're happy to make a record, but in retrospect, Alex had a very distinctive drum sound that is not as obvious on the first records. It's more normal sounding. I do like the drum sound of the first two albums as being a fatter, warmer sound, uh, and it changes over time. There's yeah, more yeah. of a, an attack to the snare drum on later records and things too. Maybe but it's, it's still. Not hi-fi as far as like the close mic sound. That, it's yep. very, you know, just a whole re whole reel of tape on there or something. Um, but when even when you listen to the live records, you still hear he has a snare tone that isn't cracky. It's more honk. Yeah, which I which I think comes across on the early records pretty blatantly. Yeah, it's a distinctive thing, and it, it, it rings out a little bit, but it's not a long ring, and mm -hmm. it's kind of short. As you yeah. mentioned, it almost sounds like the drum is very taped up on the early records. In that photo, we can't see anything about yeah. how the drums are doing, just a couple of mics well, in the air. Well, I always reference Dirty Movies, uh, Fair Warning, because mm -hmm. the intro, you can hear, and that's those are amazing drum sounds, but they're still not, like, super live. Yes. My favorite is Out of Love Again, which is on the second Van Halen record, is just... It blows away the guitar parts. It's the best thing on the whole album. It's the drum playing. Uh, his stuff is almost like jazz, but it swings and it's rocking at mm -hmm. the same time too. And he's all over the kit. Every part of it is mic'd well. But it definitely sounds like a guy at a drum set as opposed to when people do a modern drum sound. It sounds like kick drums in one space and the yeah, snare drums yeah. in another. When I hear Out of Love Again, it reminds me of like Billy Cobham's Spectrum or one of those great records from the 70s that's aggressive and rocking but still has detail and you can hear the shells ringing on the tom-toms yeah and you stuff. sound like you're in the room with the drums mm -hmm. yeah totally i advise everyone to check out that track because it's really strong and i played it for a jazz drummer friend of mine who plays with king crimson now which is pretty advanced drumming and i played it for him and he's like holy crap that's amazing so <laughs> and alex is that good yeah definitely by the way, an old friend of mine from San Diego knew them back in the day, and he said he played a Scorpions record with Uli Roth. It's got to be this famous song called Sales of Caron, which Uli Roth just is amazing. And he played it for Ed, and Ed went, oh, my God, I thought I was good. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a few people out there at the time that were just in their world doing amazing mm -hmm. things, and Uli Roth with the Scorpions was up on that level of incredible. Yeah. I did some research. I asked you... Uh, Last time we spoke, if Ted had stopped work after Diver Down, and he's actually credited on some stuff on 1984, um, just to clarify that. Um, I do remember hearing that they wanted him to produce when Sammy came back. Sammy had the Montrose history here, Van Halen history with the three of them, and 
he was already pre-committed schedule-wise to do David Lee Roth's record. And he said, I'd love to do it. And they said, well, we can't wait. We don't want to sit around. They really wanted to do that record. And that you, would have been cool. You know, he's credited, I took a look, he's credited on some of the later um, Sammy Hager records. Oh, really? Ted. VOA, uh, I think, yeah. Yeah. And again, Ted's always in the business doing Cheap Trick and doing other, yeah. he was you know, certainly credible beyond belief for so many people, but... It would have been nice to see a reunion at that time, and Sam had that history, certainly good experiences with him uh, on the two Montrose records that he did, and they are classics. But uh, I think it was Mick Jones, was it, from Mick Foreigner? Jo Mick Jones yeah. on 5150. Yeah, and Don Landy, who's certainly in the mix. He's literally uh, as important in some of those records as producing I think is. like eight, mm -hmm. eight records, something like that, I, yeah. I counted that he had worked on. Yeah, no, not not exclusively, but you know, a, a lot. There was this other guy, Kevin Dean, mm. but uh, yeah, so he was involved after leaving here. And it's always teamwork. I mean, it's always not just one person or that great guitar player or that great producer that makes it happen. It's sure. definitely the the team choices that make a good record or a great record. With everything, yeah. This is uh, just exciting stuff, you know. This is kind of how we talk about music. We were highlighting uh, on our Instagram page earlier the band Love uh, this oh, yeah. week, 1966. Their album De Capo came out, and Paul was telling me a little bit about them, how they were supposed to be the next Doors, and then the Doors came out. But we want to just share this with the fans and have it documented on our YouTube, and it's um, amazing that you came in today. And uh, Thank I you. think we might have Doug Messenger coming in next week. and. You know, when we reach these people, if they want to come share some stories, then... We'll, I mean, uh, we're all the audience for this. We're the yeah. people yeah. that will be watching it and whatever yeah. else you guys do. Um, there will probably be more books and maybe documentaries and whatever. But I think that, uh, as somebody said years ago, and we wrote it kind of in our Beatles book, is when you finish the meal, you look for the scraps on the table. Like, you want yeah. more of that good yeah. stuff. And there may not be more... Van Halen records coming in the way that we expect a new album and new songs and so forth. But maybe there are stories, there are films, concerts, yeah. who knows, interviews. So that's cool. Or old <clears throat> material, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, and yeah. obviously people are going to say we didn't get nerdy enough in the details of what <laughs> happened with. I think we went too far. Yeah. <laughs> really? A nerdy. I think there's a whole. Well, it depends on which There's nerd deep, you're talking to, deep right? <laughs> well, of nerdiness. Sure. You have to come back in a few oh, weeks. Well, you've got the notes. That's amazing. I mean, <laughs> that's some not, of them. That's yeah. cool. I'm going to work my way through all of them. It's good details. Talking and I love it. the accuracy of it. I love the uh, understanding we get about how hard people worked or how they were not so important that they might not have the evening. I didn't picture them working in the daylight hours. I, I pictured know. them recording at night. Yeah, isn't that amazing? But at one point, there was a mention that when Eruption was done, that Ed was practicing his solo for a show at a club that night or even that weekend. So, And Ted says, hey, what are you guys doing? So it may have been that very night they were going to haul the gear down to the whiskey or something and play a show. Wow. Yeah. Could be. Is there two versions of Eruption that you've... Nope. Again, I don't know. That you know of. On the actual first album, I think there's a take three of something, maybe a take four, but Honestly, most of the songs are slated like take one or take two, and they got it. They were that good. Wow, yeah. And this is what we hear on the record. So Incredible. Yeah, I mean, as it comes in, we're going to keep sharing it. Um, Jeff, anything to add? No, no. I'm elated with all this new info. Great. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thanks again for coming in. we got a nice Sunset Sound t-shirt for you. 
That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, guys. All right. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Perhaps of tomorrow. Come on, Dad. Can you close your door? Now, humans are fun. <laughs>